Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Fellas want to read me my rights. You have the right to have your face kicked in by me. You have the right to have your balls stomped by him. I'll waive my rights. They're pretty simple. The forms are all standard boilerplate. Okay, well, we're all hungry. We're going to get to our hot plate soon enough. All right, well, let's talk about the contract here. Sorry. You'd be surprised how many doors a letter from a lawyer can open or close. It seems like you're talking slower since you started charging by the hour. What's the meaning of this? This is my quiet time. We're going to have to take you into custody. <laughs> That's outrageous. What am I charged with? Don't have to tell you anymore. Clearly haven't been reading your Scalia. Welcome to Opening Arguments, the podcast that pairs an inquisitive interviewer with a real-life lawyer. This podcast is sponsored by the Law Offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC, for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. Hello and welcome to Opening Arguments. This is episode number 200. Woo! Woo! How are you doing, Andrew? I am fantastic. I, I, Siri, I mean, obviously we do our, uh, shoeshine inspired numerology bit, but, um, I, I, I am so like, I'm just thrilled that we got to 200 episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Tell you I, what, uh, you know, I, uh, I know we said we weren't going to do gifts, but, uh, I got you something for you and the listeners. I impeached yeah. Donald Trump. It's over. I, I, I thought, you know, 200 episodes is the least I could do. So Donald Trump is impeached. We've ended Yodel Mountain. I, you're welcome. I, I oh. hope it's a, a, a good get. No, I guess I, I guess that's not really in my power. I tried. I did everything I could. I wrote. <laughs> But it, it's I was going to say, I, I usually get you alcohol, so uh, <laughs> I, I don't know which one's a better gift here, but, uh, but they're both good. They're both yeah, good. I think you need one or the other, I guess, is what. <laughs> <laughs> or, no, or, uh, actually, I didn't both. get you anything. Sorry. But uh, but I oh, tell you huh. what I did get you is uh, a nice episode of Opening Arguments. <laughs> and by that, I mean, ah. you're going to give us a nice episode of Opening Arguments. <laughs> 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 what are we going to talk about today? We got what well, we can talk about. I tell you what. I got you some nice, uh, sort of good election results. How about that? That was okay. Yeah, you know, that works. Definitely me. I did it. <laughs> we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about what we teased last week a little bit, which was uh, what the house is going to look like post uh, Chris Collinsworth, because I guess he had a no Chris Collins. And uh, we're also going to talk about the Free Flow of Information Act 2017. Sounds, I don't know if that's a good thing or if that's one of those ominous uh, doublespeak <laughs> titles for something. I'm not actually sure. Well, you have it, to listen and find Yeah, I know. I know. That's. I'm going to do the teaser. Is that an actual good thing or is it a bill that allows Trump supporters to beat up journalists or something? Because honestly, who knows at this point? And finally, more on 3D guns. So uh, there's a lot, there's, there's a bit more. We got a lot of listener questions about that. So uh, Andrew's going to take us back on a, on another trip toward 
uh, the apocalypse when every kid is carrying a 3D printed gun. So can't wait for that. <laughs> way, way to, way to kind of take us right into depressing. It's episode 200, right two depressing mark. you for 200 episodes. No, it's more like depressing you for like 175 episodes. <laughs> How many? <Yeah. laughs> we got a few in there while it was still, you know, like things were looking good and we were happy and. And uh, yeah, no, it's it's a good, it's at least a hundred episodes of solid depression. But don't blame us, blame the world. So let's do it. Yeah. All right. Let's get political, 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 let's get into political. So yeah, Ohio twelve. Now I don't know if if this will be officially solidified by the time you're hearing this. I mean. It feels like with a margin as slim as it is, last I saw, it was like, I don't know, 1,700 votes or something that, you know, that it is a situation where possibly some some uh, absentee ballots or some whatever still could be, you know, could change things. But what's your impression? Is it is it solid yet? Yeah, t- two things. So, number one, I did the math on the outstanding ballots because, of course, I did. Right. right. So, Ohio 12, background, this is uh, a PVI of R plus seven. So, this is a seven point Republican district. Uh, the Cook Political Report uh, was, as far as I know, the only place they changed this race to a toss up uh, three weeks ago. Everybody else had this as a lean Republican special election. Um, and it is, in fact, uh, separated by 1,754 votes out of eight. 1,483 remaining, which are Hmm. uh, 5,000 mail-in and absentee ballots and 3,435 provisional ballots. Um, Provisional ballots tend to be overwhelmingly Democratic. Um, Here's the bottom line. What is a provisional ballot? Am I dumb for not knowing that? No, no, no. You're not. You're not dumb at all. Right. So what, what happens is because of redistricting, because of gerrymandering, Oftentimes, people's polling places get changed. You get drawn into another district uh, when you should have been in, you know, and so, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, I always vote at, you know, this Mm -hmm. middle school every year. And you don't realize that you've been drawn into another district. And so you show up. Uh, at a polling place that is uh, not, and they your give you like a place. cocktail napkin. You write down your votes, yep. and then they mail it, mail it they, over to the other. They are required uh, by state law to give you a provisional ballot. I see, uh, and then um, and then they hold on to that ballot. And what they do is uh, they make sure they they check for fraud, right, so that you don't run around to thirteen different polling places and vote in all of them. Uh, but if you are validly registered and you are within. Uh, casting the votes in the in in elections for which you were qualified to cast your votes, right? Like so, if you're outside a congressional district, they won't let you cast a ballot. You know, if you move from the third to the eighth congressional district, you can't cast the congressional ballot. But obviously, you can still cast statewide offices, and if you're within the district, you can cast. Uh, but you've just gone to the wrong polling place. Um, which also happens, right? So that, mm-hmm. that you don't have to be zoned outside the district. You can just not show up at the place that has you on the voter list. Um, so then they hold on to the ballots and then they use those ballots in elections like this that are close. Uh, and those tend to be overwhelmingly uh, Democratic. So the uh, Republican is Troy Balderson. Uh, right. Fantastic uh, Republican name. Uh, Baldy McBalderson. Um, I actually don't even think he's he's bald, but uh, but he should name. be. Um, yeah, right. I would be. I would shave my head if my last name yeah. were Balderson. I'm gonna change uh, my name to I may... change his name to Troy Her- Herderson just to be more <laughs> positive. 
Uh, so uh, the Democrat is Danny O'Connor. This race was not on anyone's radar. Um, he's going to have to win 60.4% of the outstanding ballots. Uh, and I think that is incredibly unlikely. And let me add that I don't know that this much matters, right? Because this race yeah, is it's right a back, special right election. Right back up on in November. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and the two candidates will go at it again in November. And the way in which I look at it is... Um, it, it's possible, uh, but uh, the voter enthusiasm gap is magnified in special elections as opposed to uh, regularly scheduled elections. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to imagine. Uh, you know, look, I, I, things could get demonstrably worse for the Republicans in the next uh, couple of months. That's a possibility. Um, but assuming that they just remain bad for republicans yeah. but not catastrophic uh i think this this seat is going to is going to change hands um but uh again you made Wait, this point on sio hands? um yeah so uh barring that i think the the very likely result is balderson is going to win this special election and then is going to win re-election uh in the fall in the in the general regularly scheduled election um and part of that is Right. He's going to be the incumbent congressman. And, you know, it's only for a couple of months. But uh, but that conveys uh, a, a well-demonstrated uh, advantage uh, when you're running. And, you know, in a race that's this close, every advantage uh, is, is going to count. I was going to ask a technical quick question because they keep saying, oh, they're just going to run again in November. And I always I'm just wondering, like, do 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 they have to do another primary thing or or is it just like. Because it's so close to November, they're just the same two people. But theoretically, you know, does it have to be that way or, or do they have to go through a whole nother primary for uh, November? I I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I um, keep I keep wondering every time people say, well, they're just going to run again. And it probably doesn't matter because I'm sure it would just be the same two candidates regardless. But I, I was kind of curious about that. But anyway, no big deal. So. We didn't we didn't prep this question, so I, I, I don't fully know the answer, but let me take my best guess at this, right? Which is uh, it is not impossible to appear on a ballot twice. And so for this, which coincides with the primary election, to uh, for these candidates to be running as uh, they the primary nominee for the general election and also as the candidates in the oh, special election. Okay. Um, so uh, I, I would be shocked if there is another primary in between right, uh, August time. and November. Uh, but, uh, but you can appear on the ballot twice. Uh, the other option is that there could have been an earlier primary uh, and that primary was applied to both the special election and mm. the general election. But, um, but it, it, it varies state by state i mean that the 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 case that immediately came came to mind is uh when uh, arnold schwarzenegger was first elected in california um the uh the recall effort to recall gray davis was on the ballot uh and so you had kind of this weird situation where the lieutenant governor cruz bustamante was running to win in the recall election uh, but was also on the ballot for no on the recall, right? He was the <laughs> yeah. sitting lieutenant governor, yeah. right? So, um, so you see that happen. You see this also happen in um, 
in special elections where uh, candidates will will have as their theme, you know, punch the ballot twice. So that's what I suspect okay. is going on. Feel free, write in, tell me if Andrew no, was, was wrong curious. because because no, uh, no I do want to know. No, it's a great it's a great question, but that's what I think. So uh, Donald Trump went, you know, took to Twitter and said, hey, I'm five for five. Um, you know, that that's typical Trumpism. I mean, I think. Well, he's not covered but this. Yeah, he definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but OK. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, if you don't count the ones I've lost, uh, you, know, you don't <laughs> yeah. count Doug Jones in Alabama. Like, yeah. um, you know, uh, the uh, hey, I went down to Alabama and lost that. It's <laughs> not exactly, uh, you know, what you want to tweet home about. Um I think you covered this really, really well on SIO. Um, I forget. I don't know if you know which number it was off offhand. But I don't know what you're talking about, about. What did I cover? Uh, the the Democratic performance in special elections, right? So, oh, like back almost that was like a year these, ago, right? That was a long time yeah, ago. It, it was after the the last high profile before Doug Jones. So, okay. but uh, see, I keep I keep a, an encyclopedia like index of SIO because uh, it's <laughs> that good. Um, no, no, seriously, like you, you have to look at the underlying structural conditions. Um, I, I pulled up, I'll link in the, in the show notes, the, the cook political report, uh, shows that, uh, in the last, uh, nine special elections, Democrats have outperformed their expected share of the vote by eight points. Um, and Charlie Cook, who's one of the very best in the business, says um, if that pattern were extrapolated out in the fall, uh, Democrats would pick up 81 seats in Congress. Um, that's not going to happen. Right. Even through gerrymandering. My impression was that they already yeah. had to make up like six or seven percent just on gerrymandering. I'm surprised that, 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 that would lead to that many. So that's the thing, right? That that uh, yeah. If you add eight points across the board, it it's it shifts eighty one seats. Uh, but uh, you're not going to get eight points across the board because the incumbency effect uh, subtracts from that. Um, Democrats need to need to flip twenty three Republican seats. So um, you know they're not going to yeah, pick up. But 81. I just remember be, saying, the the that. point I made back back on that episode, which feels like forever ago. So I don't even remember. But um, one one point I made is that everybody seemed to be. I was frustrated by how much people were like, well, none of it matters because the the Democrat ultimately lost still, you know, and it frustrated me because it it seems to me that one seat isn't going to make a difference anyway. So this idea that it's like, well, if Democrat doesn't matter how much ground they make up in the polling, if you still fall short, even though it's like the reddest of red districts, if you still fall short and lose, you haven't gained anything. And my point was like, even if they won, it doesn't do anything. You know, it's one house seat. It doesn't make these special yeah. elections make no actual difference yet because it's not going to swing the balance of power. You know, we, we need to swing a lot more seats. So my point was all this is is basically symbolic. And if you're looking at the the, the symbolic victory, it's the fact that, you know, we've gained eight or nine points. You know, we we've almost we, we changed to R plus seven to a toss up. And I feel like that's a victory. Yep. I think that is exactly right. And so that's. That's what I would encourage. Right. We're going to we're beginning with some good news. And I think that's a really nice segue into our our main segment. All right. Let's do it. Yeah. So I want to talk about you. You you tease this in the uh, in the intro. Um, this is a good piece of legislation, or at least it's a very interesting piece of legislation. We're going to go through it. Um, that is languishing in the House of Representatives right now. 
It is the Free Flow of Information Act of 2017. Uh, it was sponsored by uh, Jamie Raskin, who is a Maryland Democrat uh, in the House of Representatives. Somebody okay. uh, I've met. Because, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if this was just introduced now to try to get like Alex Jones back on the air. <laughs> like, right. That would be I wouldn't have been surprised either way. Honestly, you could have told me this is the best piece of legislation or right. just a ridiculous doublespeak piece of legislation. But yeah, okay, no, so we, it's do, the good we guys. do have. And and let's be fair, right? Like that that Orwellian language yeah. is something that, you know, both sides do. Right. That's not. Yeah, uh, true. That is not limited. This legislation we're going to we're going to get into the specifics but it uh involves uh, whether reporters have the right to keep their sources confidential um and so uh as usual it's tuesday and uh we 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 test drove the time machine a little bit on friday but uh but we're really going to rev it up uh today uh, but but before we get into it right think about um i mean there there's sort of two important philosophical principles that are at stake here right the first is the historical relationship between the press and democracy, right, as the fourth estate and an important check on majoritarianism and any uh, originalist literature, anything you look at with respect to the founding fathers talks about the significance of a free press uh, as really being essential to a democracy and then let's layer on top of that the relationship between Donald Trump and the press, right? Donald Trump has threatened to jail journalists, right? He did so to James Comey. Um, he has referred to reporters as scum. Uh, and he has, uh, you know, as we've talked about on the show, uh, engaged in a campaign to take uh, an an actual phenomenon of fake news and muddy the water so much that, you know, Republicans now use fake news to refer to CNN and, you know, you know, we're at the point to... where <laughs> the period of time which fake news was used incorrectly by Republicans is vastly longer than the three minutes that like NPR was using it to describe what was actually happening. Isn't that funny? Yep. The concept was instantly yeah. hijacked. Yeah. And, and that's not. I mean, in my view, this is obviously a rabbit trail, but in my view, that is a design, right? That's not that's not by accident, right? They looked at uh, and and you know the 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 Breitbart's of the world have talked about this as an affirmative strategy of taking your biggest weakness and just co-opting the words until they no longer mean what what they're supposed to mean. Um, and the, you know when, when I need to laugh instead of cry, I will quote you know that idiotic line from from Donald Trump in the uh, in the debates where. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton accused him of being a puppet of, of Vladimir Putin, and and, uh, and he robotically repeated, no, no puppet, no puppet, yeah, you're the no puppet. puppet. No puppet, um, you're the puppet. <laughs> I, I, and, and, I mean, what, you just cannot have, right, a, a more short circuit of the... In, of the strategy on display there, right, which is take a what uh, by all accounts appears to be a valid criticism uh, and just reiterate and go no not me you um so yeah. any in any event so you know if you believe historically that that protecting the press is important uh and that we are at a unique point in history um then uh then now we we would look to a question to see whether reporters should have a special kind of right that the average person doesn't get um and and here's the way in which that that comes about okay um if 
a normal person witnesses a crime, let's say they see a drug deal go down, right? And uh, and the police officer happens to watch you. You watch a drug deal go down, Thomas. Uh, and uh, and a police officer shows up at the scene, and just as you see the police arrive, you run into your house and slam the door. And, the, and then, uh, mm. so now the police know you've seen this crime. And you take the view of, yeah, you know what? Like uh, these drug dealers live on my street, and yeah. I'm not. I don't want to get involved. It's, it's not for me. Um, the the ordinary process is uh, that the prosecutor can subpoena you. They can require you to show up in court and testify. Uh, and and they're first going to call you up nicely and say, uh, Mr. Smith, uh, we're pretty sure you saw what went down. You're going to testify. And you say, I didn't see nothing. Uh, nothing happened. I'm not going to testify. I go all Vin uh, Diesel then, on them is what happens if you've seen the latest. Yeah. Uh, or listen to the latest lot awful movies. Check it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so when you do that, then the next step, assuming that you're crucial to the case, is uh, a, a very nice gentleman uh, wearing a firearm will show up at your house and hand you a subpoena and you will be required to go testify. And if you don't comply with that subpoena, you can be arrested. They will uh, issue a bench warrant for your arrest for failure to comply with a valid warrant. Um, now, and I assume if you, what if you go in and just say like, no, nah, I didn't see anything. My eyes were foggy. I don't know. It's just they can charge you with something, obstruction or lying or, but yeah, it, they can charge you with perjury, right? Perjury. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, or, and, 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 or obstruction of justice and, or, uh, if, but like, can if they really, really prove that though? I mean, if you're just like, uh, yeah, no, I was tired. I didn't see anything or so, is it just, that seems hard to prove that. I would know yeah, something. it would it would in fact be hard to prove, and there are very few cases of going after witnesses, mm. uh, you know, in in this case for perjury. But but they could, right? Okay. Uh, they they absolutely could do so. Uh, and in the extreme context, right, they could charge you as an accessory after the fact, right? They could say, no, you you know where the drug dealer went, uh, and by not telling us, you are in effect helping him uh, complete his crime, right? After the fact. Um, and, and, and again, these are unbelievably unlikely circumstances, but it is the ultimate consequence of, of what could happen to an average person. Now, uh, let's talk about a reporter. Reporters tend to know about crimes, especially investigative reporters, especially really, really good investigative reporters. And the reason is because, uh, reporters, uh, have the opportunity to talk to, people who are criminals as part of their investigative reporting, right? So, you know, imagine, for example, that you and I had the opportunity to uh, bring on the show uh, somebody who, uh, under promises of anonymity, was going to talk about the inner workings of ISIS, right? Hmm. Now, that person has uh, probably committed a crime. They certainly have knowledge of a crime. Uh, but I think you and I, as journalists, would say um, we would rather get out the message, find mm -hmm. out what ISIS is thinking. Good idea. Hit us up, ISIS. Yeah. And and <laughs> we would rather disseminate that information to tens of thousands of listeners than, you know, have somebody call and immediately run you know, to the police and go, uh, a low level ISIS person who may or may not have committed a crime just called me. Um and so, you know, so we would say we're going to sacrifice the 
uh, justice in the individual case. We're going to make it harder to prosecute that one uh, ISIS informant uh, in order to protect the greater public interest of informing the public about what ISIS is doing. Right. And so ISIS informant calls us up and says, hey, I'll come on opening arguments, but you got to keep my name confidential. You got to protect my anonymity. And we say yes. And then uh, they come on the show uh, and they talk about crimes that they've witnessed. And then the police show up uh, with a subpoena and say, "Okay, well, you happen to know who this guy is. He confessed to a crime on the air. Uh, Tell us who he is. And Mm. uh, and you and I say no, we're not going to tell you who, who he is. Brian Ziegenhagen. Oh, sorry. What? Yeah, we say no. <laughs> <laughs> we were not supposed to reveal that. We promised not to. Um, yeah. Brian so, told us um, not to tell you that it's Brian is what we said. Got it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, so uh, this happens not every day, uh, but if you uh, start to, to read the literature a little bit, this happens more often than you, than you might think. Um, it, it happens with, uh, with, with some regularity in which uh, members of the press get a court order or a subpoena that compels the disclosure of the source's identity. Um, and journalists will then say, no, uh, First Amendment, freedom of the press, uh, and, uh, and for most of American history, uh, journalists would attempt to rely on a reporter's privilege that's kind of like the lawyer's privilege, right? So, same thing, right? Like if uh, if I if I have a client who comes to me and says, you know, as it turns out, right, I was the second shooter on the grassy knoll in Dallas in 1963. I am prohibited from ever telling anybody that without his permission, right? I I can't break that confidence, even though I know the you know one of the most notorious criminals in history now, right? So I have information, but we've said. The, the attorney-client privilege is going to supersede the truth value of providing that information. And the question is, um, do journalists have a similar privilege? Um, and and the answer is, at the Supreme Court level, no. Mm. No, they don't. Uh, and that case is a 1972 case. It's called Brandsburg versus Hayes. Uh, and all of this debate takes place uh, this is this is the first stop in our time machine, 1972. Uh, all of the debate takes place in the shadow of, of Brandsburg versus Hayes. Um, that case consolidated uh, a couple of cases involving journalists um, in in two areas. One was uh, a journalist who had infiltrated a drug ring. And again, because this is 1972, uh, they were making hashish, uh, which I don't know that anybody even makes it. I don't, I don't know. I'm not I'm not a big drug guy, but uh, uh, it, it's there's a little bit of that anachronism, but basically uh, the journalist went to talk about uh, the, the to do investigative reporting on the problems of drugs in our city and uh, and got, you know, one of the uh, drug manufacturers yeah. to uh, sit down for an interview, took photos. And so what ran with his article was a photo of hands uh, mixing together the hashish. Right. Uh. Um, and with the caption, you know. Uh, anonymous drug dealer makes hashish. The other journalist who was swept up in this uh, had infiltrated the Black Panther Party. Um, and the Black Panther Party uh, had had publicly televised speeches in which they threatened, quote, we will kill Richard Nixon. Uh, that threat had been multiply repeated. Uh, and then they said, we advocate the di- direct overthrow of the U.S. government by way of force and violence. 
by picking up guns and moving against it because we recognize it as being oppressive. And in recognizing that, we know the only solution is armed struggle. And so in all of these cases, the police said, hey, uh, you journalists have knowledge of crimes uh, and we want you to disclose the identity of your sources. And in all of those cases, the journalists said no. uh, And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said um, essentially they gave two different arguments. They rejected it. Right. They said, no, you don't have a, a, a privilege in the Constitution to refuse to disclose your sources. Uh, and they basically gave two lines of evidence. The first was uh, summarized by the quotation, the public has the right to every person's evidence. Grand juries have to be able to function. The way they function is by issuing subpoenas and, you know, calling yourself a reporter. That's fine. But, uh, you know, reporters don't get extra rights. Reporters are people. People have to comply with the subpoena. So you have to comply with the subpoena. Um, And then there was a second kind of more sophisticated argument that went alongside that, which said the publisher of a newspaper has no special immunity from the application of general laws. He has no special privilege to invade the rights and liberties of others. So the, the press is not free to publish with impunity anything and everything it desires to publish. Um, so even if it's going to deter what's said and published, um, you may not, you know, for example, publish libel, right? You may not, um, they, they, relied upon a case called Zemel versus Rusk in which uh, the Supreme Court upheld uh, once the Cuban embargo was put into place, journalists tried to get passports to go to Cuba and said, hey, look, you can't. And I get that, you know, the average person can't go to Cuba, but we need to go to Cuba because we're going to report what's going on in Cuba. And if you if you don't let us go, uh, we won't be able to uh, successfully report. And uh, and the Supreme Court said, yeah, this could have a, a an incidental effect on the public's right to know about Cuba. But uh, but the law says nobody's going to Cuba. So uh, your mm. person, you're not going to Cuba. That that was the argument in favor of the government on the side of the reporters. Their main argument is that without a shield, confidential sources won't talk to us. So uh, for example, this is this is what one commentator wrote in 2018. She says, she says, reporters now fear that sources will stop coming forward with information integral to the free flow of information. Absent a framework in which members of the press can consistently protect their confidential information, sources will stop disclosing valuable information for fear of legal punishment, leaving journalists with less accurate and less timely facts to report to the public. This significantly burdens the news gathering process and effectively censors the press, which is entirely inconsistent with the First Amendment. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the Supreme Court wasn't having any of it. Um, the, the Supreme Court said, uh, look, um, we can think of at least six areas in which incidental regulations burden the press all the time. Right. So the press is excluded from, number one, grand jury proceedings. Grand jury proceedings are uh, confidential and behind closed doors. Press doesn't get to go there. Number two, from the Supreme Court itself on on occasions. Uh, Number three, from the meetings of other official uh, bodies that are held behind closed doors in executive session. Number four, uh, private sessions, private organizations. So, you know, when you and I plan the show for OA, the, the the press we we have the right to exclude the press oh um, good yeah yeah you're right i mean because so, i've just uh, got you know mountains of uh, paparazzi outside but uh glad to know that uh, i'm within my rights to say sorry 
We, uh, we, some things must be private. Hey, listeners, I need to cut in here real quick to tell you about our sponsors. First up, SaneBox. There was a mix-up with the URL. We've told you about SaneBox before a couple times. Go to SaneBox.com slash opening to get that offer, the two weeks free. Don't go to SaneBox.com slash OA. Again, mix up with the URL. Sorry about that, but make sure to check them out. Clean up that inbox. I know I have. SaneBox.com slash opening is the URL. Did you know that 66% of men lose hair by age 35? Oh boy, that's coming up real fast for me. Here's the thing. When you start to notice hair loss, that means it's already too late because it's easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair you've lost. If you're like me and you've consumed a healthy diet of pop culture over the years, you might have thought that there's nothing you can do about hair loss or all you can do is some weird solution or fake pill or something like that. Surprisingly, though, this isn't actually true. There are real prescriptions backed by science that help you keep the hair that you have. And 4hims.com connects you with real doctors for those medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. I want to emphasize, this isn't snake oil or weird supplements that aren't regulated any kind. These, these are actual prescription solutions backed by science. And the best thing about 4hims is you can get access to all this without an awkward doctor visit where you have to tell the doctor about what you're, what you're going through. You can save the time and that awkwardness by going to 4hims.com, answer a few quick questions, and a doctor will review your answers and can prescribe you the products that you need. And then they are shipped directly to your door. This really is a great opportunity if you want to try to do something about hair loss. And they have other products as well that you should check out. So while supplies last, our listeners get a trial month of hymns for just $5 right now. See the website for full details. And this would cost hundreds of dollars if you went to the doctor or to a pharmacy. So go to 4hims.com slash OA. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash OA. That's 4hims.com slash OA. But you could see how, you know, we might have information that you could argue would be useful in, you know, a public right to know context. And, you know, it's okay. To I would hope that we um, would have information that would be useful to people <laughs> since we're on now on episode 200 of our podcast. <laughs> right. There you go. Hopefully occasionally um, we've been a little useful. Yeah. Number five, you can keep the press out of a crime scene. And number six, you can stop them from attending or publishing information about a trial if those restrictions are necessary to preserve the defendant's fair right to a fair trial. Um, so, uh, so the Supreme Court said, nope, sorry, reporters don't get the special privilege. This was a very, very divided opinion. And, uh, and it was one of these that, uh, that only got to five votes through occurrence, uh, through a concurrence from uh, Justice Powell, uh, which uh, just to cut out the legal geekery here, um, nobody really knows what that concurrence means. It's been the subject of considerable debate for 45 years. Um, And it also spawned uh, a a stirring dissent from uh, Justices Potter Stewart, uh, William Brennan and Thurgood Marshall uh, that that argued for an absolute right of journalists to keep their sources confidential. Um, so that was the state of the law, 1972. That was not the end of the story. Um, in the aftermath of the Brandsburg decision, um, many states, uh, and it is now up to 49 out of 50 states, uh, passed state-level 
protections for journalists, right? They said, okay, look, uh, the, the Constitution doesn't enshrine this protection uh, into law. That's what the Supreme Court has said. But as we've talked about on the show, states are free to go beyond to give more protection uh, than the U.S. Constitution. This is the infamous one-way ratchet. Uh, and uh, and so here we go back, go back to the same commentator. This is Megan Shaw writing in a law review article for the. Uh, but I've always, sorry, let me let me pause you yeah, just yeah. for a sec because I've always wondered. This is always a question in my mind because I you know I've learned that from opening arguments and I I, I understand the concept. But doesn't it kind of depend on which way you frame the right? Like if you frame it the other way, as you know, the public has a right to know the information about a crime then the state couldn't go further and say, like, no, we don't. You know what I mean? Like, doesn't it always, couldn't it really go either way, depending on which direction you frame the right? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good question. And, you know, typically the way in which a lawyer would, would break that down is by differentiating between rights that you can apply to the individual versus general principles that are being characterized in the language of rights, but really are about efficiency, right? So that's that's how I would tackle hmm. if, if you wanted to go beneath uh, any kind of applicable federal standard, and we don't know what that would be, right, because of how the Brandsburg decision came out. But if you wanted to go beneath it and say, well, this protects the public's right to know, uh, I, I think most lawyers in writing that brief would be comfortable in saying, look, the public's right to know is just a way of characterizing in rights language something that says we want to make it easier for prosecutors to do their job or we want to make it easier for people collectively to get information about drug use in their city or whatever. And those are maybe worthy utilitarian goals, right? Like, uh, But nevertheless, they are subordinate if there is an individual right, because that's the definition of what a right is, right? Like a right says, uh, we get that it would be a good thing for society to, to make me do X, uh, but I have a claim to, to not do X. And, you know, kind of concomitant with that is um, it's implied that if you were to force me to do X, that would be good for the majority, because otherwise, why would you want to force me to do it? Right. Like no, the, the government never wants to force you to do something that would be bad for, you know, society writ large. So um, that that's kind of how you would tackle that is the, is the question of specificity of. OK, uh, is this is this attribute is this attributable to the individual or is this something we're thinking about as, um, you know, uh, maybe using the language of rights, but uh, but but it but it's kind of vague once you kind of zoom in. And and the, and the good way to think about that is to apply our lessons on standing, right? Is to ask, you know, is this something where a person could bring a lawsuit and say my right has been violated, right? Is there a bright line? So it's really really easy to figure out if you have a journalist privilege, right? You can figure out how that right has been violated, right? I'm a journalist. I don't want to comply with this subpoena, and the law says I have to, or I get, uh, you know, hauled off to jail. Um, on the other, on the flip side, right? How would you define a public with the right to know about, you know, certain stories in the press, right? You know what I mean? Uh, it, you, it would be very, very difficult to draw that bright line to say, okay, well. You know, I got this much information, but not that much information. You know what I mean? It, mm -hmm. it it would it's tough to sort of say here's where the violation occurred. Gotcha. But again, these debates really do take place, right? So um, I I I don't mean to suggest that it is 
cut and dried. Uh, but but that is, I think, the ground upon which that that debate would take place. I, I will tell you uh, that as a practical matter now, either through state Supreme Court jurisprudence, that's 10 states, or by statute, that's 39 more states and the District of Columbia, um, 49 states and the District of Columbia <laughs> now have some kind of privilege that allows journalists to protect the confidentiality of their sources. The only state that does not is Wyoming. So keep that one in mind. Um, uh, Darn, that's too uh, bad because, you know, you know, all the uh, the really hot news coming out of Wyoming that we, you know, there's just so much going on that they're probably just like, we don't even have journalists or anything. So who cares? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. Now to all our Wyoming, Wyoming listeners are going to um, come at us. Yeah. No, I've, I've, this is interesting. I'm not sure if this is a good time, but I, I wanted to, to briefly kind of comment and ask you what you think about this, because. This is one of those things where I kind of maybe I do agree with the Supreme Court because I, I don't know from my understanding and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know that it would necessarily to make sense, make sense to say the journalists have a constitutional right to do this. But I think of it as kind of I, I would think of it in more practical terms of, well, it's not as though this would happen otherwise. Like it, picture a world in which journalists aren't allowed to keep sources private, then what you would, it's not as though you would catch more criminals. You know what I mean? Like my thinking is in one scenario, you would catch the same number of criminals because people would just not go to journalists because they know they're not protected. And therefore it's not as though you're catching any more criminals or you, you go to the, the other way, which is, um, well, people will know that they can go to journalists with interviews about, you know, ISIS or drugs or whatever it is and be anonymous and it'll be the same like you'll probably catch the same number of criminals except the public will have this useful and very interesting information from which to you know to be more informed about policy and stuff like that so i look at it as a good but i don't know that i would say therefore the supreme court should have ruled the other way because i don't know that it necessarily it seems like it maybe should be something that we do with legislation what do you think so I really like the way you, you broke that down, because what you did was compare both worlds, right? Like you were saying, in the world in which journalists have the right to keep their sources confidential, uh, yes, people go to the journalists, and so uh, we get the benefit of more information being disseminated to the public uh, at the cost of the journalists then don't run to the police and give us information on, on, on criminals. But the alternative is not those people tell journalists, but then yeah. journalists immediately snitch on them. The, right. the alternative is those people don't tell the journalists and we don't get any more information. So I think you've, you've correctly addressed sort of the, uh, the utilitarian calculus here of, do you in fact get more criminal prosecutions in a world in which journalists don't get to keep their sources safe. And I think there is substantial doubt about that for precisely the reason that you've just described. Yeah, it's like they're acting the like journalists are going to act as undercover police officers for the police or something. It's like, that's not going to happen. Yeah. And in, and in fact, in the Powell concurrence, right? I mean, part of why uh, it's it's so 
open to interpretation is that one of Powell's lines, a very, very short concurrence, and he's trying to kind of narrowly confine it to the facts. And he says, well, obviously, we're not going to allow the government to annex journalists as an arm of its prosecutorial wing. Right. And so, you know, so you look at it and you're like, okay, well, you seem to recognize that this would be a problem. uh, But, uh, you know, where where are you coming out? Right. So so I, I think that's I think that's a really, really excellent point. Um, and then and then the second question you asked is just because something is desirable uh, doesn't mean that you would find that right inherent in the Constitution. Um, and that kind of brings us along to the question about, OK, so the Supreme Court passed. Right. The Supreme Court said this isn't a right. Um, that means two things can happen. Right. Number one, uh, states can supplement and make it a right. Uh, in each state, um, there's a problem. There are, in fact, two problems with relying on states to do this. Right. The first is the protections are wildly inconsistent from state to state. Mm. So, uh, you know, now you you create kind of this weird scenario of, you know, if I'm if I'm a journalist in X state, but then my subject is in Y state, right? You know, yeah. you don't know. Uh, what's going to apply? Uh, and, and then is, and is also point two? To be, uh, what about federal crimes? Is that going to be point? And that's exactly and point two. Stuff? Is yep, um, federal grand juries. And keep in mind, whistleblowers against the U.S. government, yeah. right? People who have the dirt on the government, the, exactly the kind of people that you think we want to have talking to journalists under protection of anonymity, mm. um, have nothing, right? They have no. Uh, unique protection. And so in recent years, right, I can I can think of uh, at least two examples. I know there are more. Um, in, in 2005, uh, Judith Miller served 85 days in jail. Um, she uh, refused to testify in connection with the Valerie Plame investigation, if you remember when uh, when that was a thing. Um, and then in 2014, in connection with the um, with the Jeffrey Sterling investigation, there was a journalist named James Risen uh, who similarly uh, refused to testify. He litigated uh, and then ultimately uh, his he lost his case uh, before the Fourth Circuit, uh, appealed to the Supreme Court uh, and the Supreme Court denied cert. So he was sort of left twisting in the wind. And then ultimately the government decided to give up and not call him as a witness. Uh, but but in prior cases, the government has said, yeah, no, sorry, we want you as a witness. We're going to go ahead and uh, and we're going to charge you with contempt. And, you know, and like I said, Judith Miller uh, uh, went to prison over this. And so the 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 Ryzen case, I think, is um, underscores the fact that um, since Brandsburg, the Supreme Court has not taken these kinds of cases. In fact, uh, in 45 years, they have only heard one case on reporter privilege, and they have just denied cert in every other case, right? So the result is that you have kind of this patchwork at the federal level where some circuits are more robust than others. Uh, some circuits seem to say there's there's no right whatsoever. Some say there's kind of a qualified privilege. They're all sort of trying to fit into this Brandsburg decision that really isn't very clear and really doesn't give them a lot of guidance. And so uh, when you have a federal investigation, right, you kind of have both of those harms, right? You have the, uh, if it's, if, if we're talking about potentially, uh, testifying in a state trial, it's going to vary state by state, but even in a federal trial, it's going to vary state by state based on which circuit you're under. And so that 
kind of brings us to H.R. 4382, which is the Free Flow of Information Act of 2017, which we teased at the beginning of the segment um, that says uh, it's meant to give you a uniform standard. And it says in any matter arising under federal law, a federal entity may not compel a covered person put a pin in that, to provide testimony or produce any document, that is, comply with a subpoena, related to information obtained or created by such covered person as part of engaging in journalism, unless a court determines by a preponderance of the evidence, uh, after providing notice and opportunity to be heard, three things. One, that the party seeking to compel production of such testimony, that is, the government, uh, has exhausted all reasonable alternative sources other than the covered person, Two, that the information is, quote, critical to the prosecution and that the case meets certain important national security or other uh, interests. And three, uh, that the public interest in compelling the disclosure outweighs the public interest in gathering or disseminating news or information. Um, so, you know, let's let's unpack that a little bit. This is not an absolute privilege, right? This says in instances of terrorism or serious crime or whatever, uh, that may not meet those criteria. Um, in, in cases where there's no other opportunity, there's no other avenue, uh, the government can still issue uh, a subpoena and require a journalist to testify. Uh, but it essentially takes the strict scrutiny approach and says, um, in the average garden variety case, in the Valerie Plame case, uh, that, no, we're not going to let, uh, as a matter of first or intermediate resort, uh, we're not going to let the government go to journalists and force them to turn over their sources. Uh, we're going to go only as a last resort, only if it's absolutely necessary. There's no other way to get it, uh, and it meets these other criteria. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I think that, you know, that kind of strikes the right balance. Um, obviously, you know, folks can differ. To me, the really, really interesting question uh, in terms of looking at this debate is the definition of what counts as a covered person, right? Who's a reporter under this statute? Mm. And uh, and this, this statute defines covered person as, quote, a person who regularly gathers, prepares, collects, photographs, records, writes, edits, reports, or publishes news or information that concerns local, national, or international events or other matters of public interest for dissemination to the public, for a substantial portion of the person's livelihood, or for substantial financial gain and includes, you know, supervisors, employers, parents, subsidiaries, or affiliates of such covered persons. So... Uh, in English, it means uh, you have to do this for a living. You have to make money at it, or you have to devote a substantial portion of your livelihood to it, even if you're not making a lot of money. This has to be your job. So think about what that means from the purpose of the statute, right? It means covers NBC, CNN, Fox News. It means it covers us, right? Uh, it means it covers Alex Jones. Uh, but it means it does not cover J random blogger, right? It does not <laughs> cover somebody. Uh, it's it's blank Bachman. Blo yeah, yeah. <laughs> blank Bachman. J random blogger uh, did, did some good coverage on blank Boxman. We we <laughs> right. definitely indispensable. Uh, but, yeah, but but think about it, right? Like uh, 
are we now drawing the line that says a professional blog, right? Like I bet, I, I don't know the, the answer, but you know, I bet, uh, uh, you know, that now, uh, the drudge report is probably a substantial portion of Matt Drudge's income. Um, when he first broke onto the scene, was that a substantial portion of his income? Right. I don't know. Um, do, do we want to say that somebody who is a citizen activist, um, there used to be a, uh, a Maryland state politics blog uh, that was run by someone who then left to go work for a campaign. Um, but uh, but it was it was the best source on local Maryland politics. And it was something that he did as a labor of love. Right. Like it was not uh, commercial. It was not a substantial portion of his uh, livelihood. Um, wouldn't be covered. And so I think, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're going to we could we could go six hours on the, the present face of journalism. <laughs> but uh, but to me, you know, that's really kind of the linchpin question here when you're figuring out, you know, OK, let's solve the philosophical question. Who should we protect? How should we go about protecting them? And then, you know, let's let's sort of get into the weeds. Right. We say, OK. Uh, if we've come to the conclusion as a philosophical matter that we want to protect the confidentiality of reporter sources, um, does it make sense to have a rule that protects Alex Jones but doesn't protect a civic-minded public servant? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. We can answer that on this show, but uh, but I, I certainly thought it was worth uh, opening this up for discussion. And again, all of this is moot, you know, under the current Republican Congress. Uh, but uh, well, but it seems like sorry. a good bill to me anyway and maybe if we retake the house here in a few minutes then it could go somewhere i mean it's not going to get signed but it could at least be a bigger deal yeah look i agree with you right i i certainly think that having a uniform standard and recognizing the principle is better than the patchwork that we have now uh i i just want to point out the continuing sort of nuances to this debate as we're thinking about it but but you're right. I mean, you you kind of cut to the punchline. You have to have a political system in place that cares about these issues, right? And you know that that kind of brings us. I think it's a nice uh, wrap up of, of of full circle back to we have an administration that is uniquely hostile to the press, uh, certainly in in modern times. And um, and you know, being able to move away from that, being able to start discussing these issues of the relationship between the press and government again, uh, I think would be incredibly beneficial uh, to the country. So, uh, yeah, that's another if 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 you're wondering about another reason to go out, you're you're on the far left and you're not enthused about the corporatist Democrat that won their primary in your area and you're thinking about voting third party or staying on. Another good reason to take the House is uh, we can start talking about these things again. So. Yep. Yep. Well, we're going to do it. Let's do it. Let's take the House. And furthermore, let's uh, better O'Rourke the Senate. Let's uh, let's take the there Senate. There you go. Well. That's I that that would if, if better O'Rourke is down by six points now in the RCP average. Um, if that gets down to two or three points, um, then all of a sudden the 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 chance that the Democrats retake the Senate uh, becomes, you know, becomes a real possibility. So um so, uh, yeah. <laughs> Get voting, you. everybody. There are some more people with missing chromosomes who ought to be thrown screaming from a helicopter. As Charlton Heston famously said, from my cold, dead hand, you sons of bitches, this far and no further with your damn dictatorship. Did you know that hammers kill more than guns? Oh, yeah, I'm a gun. 
I'm a gun enthusiast. Okay, so more stuff on 3D printed guns. What do we got? <laughs> yeah, um, a, a bunch of folks asked us a, a lot of things. And obviously, every time we do a guns episode, we get uh, we yeah. get some comments and controversy. And, you know, I like that. Something that came up on multiple occasions was whether we had seen the Electronic Frontier Foundation's take. I'm going to link that in the show notes and uh, and I thought it would be worth talking about it because I have seen it. I have been through it. Uh, it it does not change my view, but I but I want to talk about the issues P- with, with a little bit of nuance. for a moment that I don't know what the Electronic Frontier Fund Foundation is. Okay, so they are a First Amendment watchdog group. Um, I am usually on their side, right? They hmm. are. Uh, usually aligned with the ACLU on free speech issues and in particular on extending principles of free speech uh, when it comes to communications over the Internet. Right. So, you know, we know stare decisis, we have certain precedents and a large part of the game is, okay. well, you know, is this scenario like this scenario? Right. Is reading the subject line on someone's email like slitting open an envelope or is it like looking at the outside of an envelope? Right. And so how you determine that determines substantively whether email protections fall on one side of the line for First Amendment or whether they fall on the other side of the line. And so they've done great work, right? I, I, I like the EFF on an awful lot of things. I disagree with them here. And, 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 uh, and, but I thought it was worth asking the question because they are by no means, you know, a right-wing hacky organization, right? They, they're, they're well-motivated folks who, who do good work. I just, I just think they're wrong here. Um, and, and I should say, in their piece, they disclose that they uh, intervened and worked with uh, Defense Distributed. They worked with uh, Cody Wilson. So um, their disclosure statement says uh, Defense Distributed applied for the license uh, with with the uh, U.S. government, and EFF helped the, advise the company at this juncture and helped it to get experienced export counsel. Um, so uh, you know they they. They have a dog in this fight. Uh, they initially met with and advised Wilson and his company, Defense Distributed. And, you know, and again, props to them for disclosing that. I don't think their arguments in this brief are very good. Uh, but I but I do want to clarify uh, something from from uh, last week, from from episode 197. I don't think it's a crazy question to ask whether distributing CAD files is free speech. Okay, and if I if I gave that impression that it is a ridiculous question, that's not my view. Um, that my view tracks the view of the Fifth Circuit, and that is that the CAD files are not speech because they're purely functional and they're devoid of the communicative and expressive qualities that are characteristic of speech. So. Let, let, let me think about that for, for a second, right? Suppose uh, I wanted to put up a mock stop sign with a bumper sticker on it that said Trump, right? So you've you've probably driven past in your neighborhood, uh, you know, actual stop signs that say stop and then somebody's put a Trump bumper sticker under mm. it. So it then says stop Trump, right? That would contain, right? That obviously contains a political message. Stop Trump. Um, but if I were to go onto a street that doesn't have a stop sign on it and erect something that looks exactly yeah. like a stop sign, 
right? The, the government would stop me from doing that, right? They would say, no, no, no. Like, we're going we're gonna to sever out the communicative aspects of what you want to do here. Right? Stop Trump is a, is a core First Amendment message. We're going to protect your right to do that. Uh, but applying some version of the time, place, and manner doctrine. They're gonna be, but the problem is you want to put up something that looks exactly like a government stop sign, and that doesn't have communicative value. That's just functional. That's meant to regulate traffic. And so let's sever these two out and uh, and stop you from doing the thing that's going to prevent the government from controlling traffic on this street and figure out a way to protect your right to talk about how bad Trump is. Apply that to this situation. Cody Wilson does not want to engage in a debate about the source code of the 3D printed guns, right? He said that, right? The communicative aspect of what he wants to do is his manifesto, right? He wants to, you know, stick it to the victims of the Parkland massacre, as we read on the show, and to make it impossible for governments ever to pass meaningful gun reform, right? That's his stated goal. And so his goal in circulating the 3D blueprints is not to have a discussion about right? His goal is to undermine the law. In my view, it is directly analogous to sticking up the fake stop sign. Um, that's my point on, on functionalism. Uh, I think that's the way the Supreme Court would go. But, um, but, but let me give voice to the other side, which is the Supreme Court has said all ideas having even the slightest redeeming social importance including those concerning the advancement of truth, science, morality, and the arts, have the full protection of the First Amendment. Right? So if something has a scintilla of redeeming social importance, uh, it is protected by the First Amendment. Now, being protected by the First Amendment doesn't mean you have a right to do it, right? It, it means that the First Amendment applies, and then you have to weigh it against other considerations. Uh, but but the argument here is that this doesn't implicate the First Amendment at all under the functionalist view. Um, and and it's not crazy to suggest that something like computer-aided uh, design programming uh, comes under the First Amendment. Um, and, and the way in which you would go there uh, is by putting forth evidence of similar functionalist speech uh, that nevertheless gets First Amendment protection. And and here, and I, I'm going to skip over a lot of the EFF's letter because um, it, it makes some stuff that that I think is is wrong uh, and misleading. Uh, and it makes some, you know, kind of NRA-like arguments of, well, you know, there are other ways to make your own gun and stuff, you know, that, that in my view, it's just, you know, that's a public policy question. But, but uh I don't see how that's remotely persuasive, right? The, the, the idea that, you know, a skilled machinist could make their own gun, uh, in, in my view, doesn't answer the question of whether we want something where, you know, a kid yeah. can just upload a program and print a gun at school, right? And the argument of, well, you know, you can't print the bullets. Like, I, I mean, it's a, it's a core aspect of firearm safety that you store your firearms and your bullets separately, right? And so, and and many people, right? I, I don't know what NRA best practice is to have both under lock and key, but, uh, but many people store their firearms in a locked gun closet and their bullets in an unlocked drawer, right? So kid gets mm. a hold of a bullet. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot easier to, to print a gun than it is for a kid to get a hold of a gun. Um, so uh, uh, public interest is really, really easy for me to, to define. And then there, there are these arguments. We'll skip over that. Um, I looked at the brief that they filed, the amicus brief that they filed in, in the defense distributed case. Um, the only case they cite in the Fifth Circuit that uh, 
instructions like this are speech is a case called Herseg versus Hustler magazine. It's a 1987 case, uh, and it involved an article in Hustler magazine that uh, talked about, it was called Orgasm of Death, and this was a 1981 (laughs) Hustler article about autoerotic asphyxiation. And in that case, 14-year-old managed to sneak a copy of Hustler. Um, Boy, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not not sure how that happened in yeah, 1987. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and weirdly decided he was going to read the articles, um, read the article, decided to try it out uh, and and uh, and unfortunately killed himself. And so his parents sued Hustler magazine for providing what they described as the instructions on how to uh, engage in, in autoerotic asphyxiation. And the Fifth Circuit said, uh, this is free speech, and um, and they they distinguished the argument in a number of ways. Um, not not the least of which is that um, there's not a whole lot of instruction that needs to go into yeah. uh, how to engage. Right? I mean that the 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 court the court's words. This is the Fifth Circuit. This is not opening arguments, and we have long said, do not take advice of any sort from this podcast. Um, the the court said. The manner of engaging in autoerotic asphyxiation apparently is not complicated. To understand what the term means is to know roughly how to accomplish it, end of quote. So, you know. Court's like, uh, we all tried it and we. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I, I, I will tell you, if that's your best case for why in the Fifth Circuit, right? And, and let me say, there are cases in other circuits about cryptography falling under the First Amendment, right? We could we could delve into it, but within the relevant circuit, if your best case is uh, let's not hold uh, Hustler liable for you know this story about a uh, you know about a, a sexual practice, um, I, in my view, that is not a very close. Yeah relationship to to this case right there yeah there is clear communicative value, right like the whole point of writing the article was hey look you know more people than you think might be doing this thing uh and as the court points out you know i mean the title was orgasm of death right like it was <laughs> it was not uh uh it was apparently not um an uh a uh a glowing an review right yeah it, it it as the court points out they did not advocate the practice um whereas there's there's no advocacy of any kind going on uh, with the the 3D printing instructions, right? Like it's not meant to engender a debate. It is meant to provide specific functional instructions. So I'm not persuaded, but I've been through and uh, and I did want to, uh, you know, sort of give voice to the other side of the argument. It's not a crazy argument, uh, but uh, but in my view, it's it's not a winning argument. And um, and that's that's where I come out. Well, fair, fair stuff. Yeah, no, I. That seems to make sense to me. I don't see how those cases are really even that much related. I don't, that <laughs> seems vastly different to me, but okay. Well, we've got to thank our new patrons. All right. So thank you to Tyler, to my last name, managed to offend even Tom, <laughs> to livebaseballscorecards.com. Oh, I'm going to go check that out. Uh, Wouter Vermeyen, Stephanie Bennett. Newly satisfied client of P.A. Torres, Brian Shilligo. Yeah, thanks. Um, Robert Sharp, Kevin Wright, Anthony Steffensmeyer. Check out Journalism Podcast, Whatever Happened to Pizza at McDonald's. 
I, I don't know if that's the name of the podcast or an episode. That that seems like you might run out of topics kind of quickly, but uh, <laughs> seems neat. Make Orwell fiction again. Good call. <laughs> nice. Nate Dixon's latest pickaxe estate tax conviction. <laughs> and this pledge may only be used to buy McDonald's for Andrew. Well, well, this, uh, I will record a picture of myself buying some McDonald's. Uh, I can always at least get a Diet Coke at McDonald's. I, I want to point uh, out that this is a $2 pledge. I mean, that means ooh. you need to go to McDonald's a few times a month here. So there we go. Uh, All right. I <laughs> <laughs> Can I, I'll, you know, look, I'll take the hit for you. I'll be happy to. Oh, yeah. You know, is it I, transferable? It's a. It's yeah, a, if I eat a, it in your honor. Well, treatment. is it fee simple or is it. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, there's a little law joke for you, uh, law fans, for you, for you real property fans. Okay. And thank you to Mike Mahoney, an anarchist communist who wants to hear a lot awful movies. <laughs> Ryan Null, Nicole Rick, Ricka, or. Yeah, I think that's probably Ricka. Two C's? It could be Richa? I don't know. Nicole Rick, Ricka, Richa or something. Randy with a Y. <laughs> and I like it because it's with a, like, W-H-Y. Randy with a Y, which I think is appropriate <laughs> nice. for right now. Liam Smith, Earl Warren, Carlos Tirado, Andrew McFarland, the butt fumble presidency. <laughs> <laughs> Jay Weiler and a deep fried cheese steak. Oh, cheese stick. A deep fried cheese Ooh. stick. Both sound both good. of those sound amazing. Yeah. Maybe we get both. I would crush a deep fried <laughs> cheese steak right now, but uh, I will take. There used to be there was a there's a a place on the Princeton campus that sells uh, what they call the fat lady sub, and it is a steak sub with fried mozzarella cheese sticks in them. Oh, it's so good. It's it's amazing. Yummy. Anyway, uh, thank well, you thank you guys, and I hope you enjoyed a lot awful movies. Hot off the presses, pretty recently, so go check that out for all your favorite uh, <laughs> Vin Diesel related law movies. It's there's only the one, so we we captured it. All right, and now it's time to find out whether my string of uh, nonsense made any sense, or you know maybe I got lucky uh, and I blacked out like Will Ferrell in that one movie and just said everything right, or maybe I'm am I like Will Ferrell? Or am I like uh, Adam Sandler where I said a bunch of stuff and then it all turned out to be nothing? Mr. Madison, what you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Okay, a simple wrong would have done just fine, but... Uh... All right, Thomas. Uh, so this was a contracts question, but a, a pretty layered one, right? This was person A loans $1,000 to person B. Uh, they then go through, and person B says, uh, Hey, I'd like to pay uh, on the 5th of the month instead of the 1st. Uh, person A says, yeah, that's fine, but you got to pay by cashier's check. And person B says, oh, yeah, that's fine. And then uh, subsequently, person A sells that debt to somebody else, to a bank. By the way, parenthetically, um, that's a perfectly valid thing to do, right? Like you can sell debts to somebody else. This is how our debt collection industry works, right? So uh, what happens is these huge debt collection firms uh, yeah. will will come in and will buy debt up uh pennies on the dollar and then you know hound you uh and you know if they have a 
collection percentage that exceeds the value by which they purchase, then they make money. And obviously they make money. Anyway, so uh, they sell out the debt and the bank says, uh, hey, nobody told me about this whole fifth of the month thing. And um, we are going to inform you that your payments must be made on the first of the month. Can person B, can the debtor justifiably insist that the payment be the fifth of each month? And you went through an elaborate distinction uh <laughs> In eliminating answers B and C uh, between waiving a condition in a contract and just, as you put it, amending the contract, right? Changing what the contract says. Um, so you use that to, to toss out answers B and C and to pick answer D. And I have to tell you, I've been sitting on this since our record. You analyze this exactly perfectly. I'm no going to way. upload the text for our patrons. And so you can see what the National Council of Bar Examiners had to say about answer D, which Holy is moly. Uh, your answer. Yes, because the creditor could assign to the bank only those rights the creditor had in the contract at the time of the assignment. Here's what I usually paraphrase and give my own analysis. Here's what the NCBE says. Okay. They say, Correct. An assignee succeeds to a contract as the contract stands at the time of the assignment. In this case, the parties had modified the contract as to when the payments were due. Note that there was consideration for the promise to accept payments, right? And that consideration right. being the cashier's the, check. you have to make it in a cashier's check, right? So both sides gave something of value. Later, the consideration was the debtor's promise to make future payments by cashier's check. Accordingly, the debtor can insist that the payments be due that the on the fifth of each month. And I'm not going to read the uh, reasons A, B, and C were incorrect, uh, but they begin with by pointing out uh, that this is not the example of waiving a condition in a contract. The attractive distractor is waiving the condition was the first instance, right? So on February one, ah. the debtor says. Oh, man, I don't have it on the first day. I'm going to have it for you by the fifth. And the creditor says, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And then subsequently comes up again. The debtor says, hey, I don't have it on the first of the month. I'm going to have it on the fifth. And the creditor says, yeah, look, we'll change it. You can pay on the fifth, but you got to give me this thing in exchange. That is not a waiver. That is a modification to the contract. You're you damn right. 100% perfectly. I am so proud of you. This was awesome. Wow. I'm a real lawyer, everybody. <laughs> I'm just well, going to do contract law, though. <laughs> uh, uh, not only did you get it right, uh, but this is the correct answer that puts you over All 50. Right. So you will be over 50% better so than him. No matter how many times uh, I trip over my own shoelaces on the way to the end zone, I still got that 50%. That's good. There you go. So congratulations. Well, holy moly. I feel like I won this, but I, I feel like we shouldn't even do a winner, but no, we will. But uh, but <laughs> th th it's second place. Hop in your time yeah. machine and find who got second place uh, because apparently I did exactly what the state whatever bar of something that you said <laughs> thought. So uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm awarding, I'm using my privilege on the podcast to award myself the prize this, uh, this, this week. So please <laughs> shower me with never ending fame and fortune. I'll appreciate it. Who got second place? Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. 
Well, Thomas, this week's winner is S.J. Harrison, that is at Shaded Sprider on Twitter, who says, I am going with B for TTTV since I think this is a waiver, not a change. So just an illustration, the difference between waiver and modification to a contract is something that uh, that trips people up. And uh, and while this was an incorrect answer, it was definitely made in good faith. It definitely uh, went to the heart of the issue. So everyone give that's at Shaded Sprider, S. H-A-D-E-D-S-P-R-I-T-E-R. Give SJ a follow on Twitter, and uh, congratulations for being this week's winner. All right. Well, wow. I'm, uh, whew, I'm, I'm at 50%. Guy. Well, I guess a minimum of 50%. I know, big, big number 50, I guess, is what, what I mean to say. Um, but anyway, that was a great episode. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks most of all to our patrons for making the show happen. And we hope you're enjoying that bonus stuff, a lot off of movies and all that. And we will see you on Friday. Yep. Until then. You betray the law! This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Thomas. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com law. If you can't support us financially, it'd be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at www.openargs.com. Be sure to like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OpenArgs. Until next time. Podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Opening Arguments is produced with the help of our editor, Brian Ziegenhagen, production assistant, Natalie Newell, and our unofficial researcher, Magpie. A special thanks to the moderators of the Opening Arguments Facebook community, Natalie, Alicia Cook, Eric Brewer, and Emily Waters. And also thanks to Thomas Smith, who wrote and produced all of the amazing music you hear, which is used with his permission. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.